Welcome to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the internet at mhtalkradio.com, where we are archived for your binge listening pleasure. You can always go back in time, take the way back trip, way back, and listen to some of the fabulous conversations Matt and I have had and if you go back even further than Matt Robeson, you can hear wonderful events like the, like the summit conference between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin discussing how to do in the Democrats and what a great job Donald Trump is doing trashing democracy. We're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. So as you get back on those airplanes, fully sanitized, masked in your hazmat suits, traveling to places that won't let you in only to be turned back, you can listen to us as a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. My co-host, Matt Robeson, is the author of a popular blog, amoreperfectunionforum.com, and he writes for The Alternate, which you can find out in cyberspace, all kinds of interesting articles about politics. And believe it or not, we are going to talk about politics today. What another great day on the American political scene. Here we are. Let's see what's going on. Well, COVID is on the way up. You know, Donald Trump always said that we're a great nation. We're the greatest nation. And he wants to make us even greater. We're number one, is Donald Trump. Donald Trump's mantra, and we are. It turns out we're number one in COVID-19. While Europe has controlled their COVID-19 outbreak with strong measures, uh, if you look at the charts uh, lately, which have been put up on CNN, you can see that COVID-19 is surging in America, surging all across the Sun Belt, surging in states that decided that mask wearing was optional, surging in states where people listen to Donald Trump. And what has been the response? Well, there's pretty much silence from the White House. And we heard very recently that the federal government is going to stop funding COVID-19 testing. Because you see, according to Donald Trump, and this is indicative of the way the mind of the great charlatan works. According to Donald Trump, if you test less, you'll you'll know about fewer cases. Get that. Test less and you won't be bothered by COVID-19 because you won't know. After all, no testing, no COVID. You get it. At least no testing, no COVID that you may know about until a loved one gets the disease or you find yourself in an over overrun hospital emergency room because out there in the world, folks, uh, the hospitals in a variety of states in the United States are finding themselves up against it with uh, almost 100% capacity in some places. Um, so meanwhile, Donald Trump held a rally in Tulsa. That was a big event uh, this week. I thought it was a pretty wonderful event. He was spoke to a crowd of 6,000 people. He expected 60,000 to fill the arena, but 6,000 showed up. Now, where were they? Well, a lot of people were probably out in front of the White House protesting Black Lives Matter and police brutality because there was a bigger crowd outside the White House protesting Donald Trump 
than there was inside the, agree, the arena in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Donald Trump was shown to be dejected. He looked unhappy. The pictures of him appeared with his red tie undone, his blue suit rumpled, a look of sadness and concern on his face, and the headlines later read, Donald Trump in a fury over Tulsa disaster. So there you have it. 6,000 people, including yawning, bored people, listening to Donald Trump rail in his unhinged reality. Actually, we have a reality. Donald Trump has a reality. It's unbelievable. But here we are once again. And let's just think about this, folks. We are four short months away from a presidential election, which everybody says is the most consequential election of our lifetime. Now, I know that everybody always says that the election for president is the most consequential election in their lifetime. But, you know, this one really might be the most consequential election in our lifetime. And here's the thing. Joe Biden, Joe Basement Biden, Joe from my basement, Joe Biden seems to be well ahead of Donald Trump in Poland. Now, polling is just a snapshot. It's a long, hot summer and a long, cool fall away. But right now, Biden is far ahead of Donald Trump, including in very, very important swing states. The real clear politics polling average is almost 10 points. Hillary Clinton was ahead by four at the same time. And we're seeing it in the swing states. And, I mean, we're seeing it from Sunbelt states from Florida and Arizona to Rust Belt states uh, like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, where, as we know, uh, candidate Clinton did not put in the kind of effort that turned the Electoral College her way despite a three million vote margin in the popular vote. So we expect the race for president to tighten going down the stretch. It always does. Donald Trump is now uh, promoting the idea, already promoting the idea that mail-in voting is somehow a fraud or a conspiracy or a disaster, although he mails in his ballot, as do many people. In fact, many states have mail-in voting. So who knows what's going to actually happen? But here is the question for today's show. Let's just assume I know assumptions are always dangerous, but it makes for a good show. So let's just assume that we wake up at some period of time after November 3rd, because it's unlikely that all the votes will be counted on November 3rd, that we wake up on some sunny morning in November. We wake up on that sunny morning and there are no court challenges there are no National Guardsmen trying to force their way into the White House to extract Donald and Melania and Barron and whatever other churlish denizens of the Trump administration are still lurking in there, clutching their computers, trying not to be evicted. Let's just say that we wake up on that sunny morning and it's a new day in America, a bright new day. And Joe Biden is 
will be president. Donald Trump's reign is over. King Trump has been dethroned. And while he'll have a few more months, Republicans all across the political firmament are starting to fulminate. They're beginning to foment. They're beginning to wonder, well, we've lost before. What will we do about it? So, Matt, take us back. Give us some sense of where we've been with the Republican Party. And we can talk a little bit about historically where where the Republican Party has been. But now it's the party of Donald Trump. And the question for today is, what will it become and why will it become it? Yeah, that is a really tough question. And I've just finished doing a deep dive article on this for Alternate, which may be published by the time that this episode is uh, posted online. Um, And, you know, the jumping off point was the question that you just posed, which is, where is it going to go? But importantly, how can we ground our thinking about what will happen next to the Republican Party in some historical example, some empirical evidence, some indication, because it's necessarily speculative. It's very, very hard to know. We've probably never been in recent American history at a time of greater fluidity and uncertainty. So what I did in trying to tackle that question was talk to a bunch of Republican insiders, most of whom um, remained anonymous for the purposes of, of the article, to get some insider perspectives and then to try and give ourselves a historical starting point to base some kinds of judgments around. And to your specific question, you know, look, we've gone through in the last 10 or 15 years, which is probably the the best recent lens to look in, through two elections where Republicans have lost um, the, the, the presidential race. And I think they're kind of instructive. So if you go back to 2004, Republicans were in an incredibly strong place, right? Karl Rove, the presidential advisor, was talking about a long-term conservative reign, and party leaders, party spokespeople, were openly talking about the prospect of a permanent conservative majority. And then what happened? The Iraq war continued to unfold in a disastrous way. Uh, President Bush overreached on trying to privatize Social Security, and then we had Hurricane Katrina. And as a result, the Republican brand and George W. Bush's individual approval rating went to historically low territory. Uh, The Republican uh, brand hit its almost its 30 year floor. And so over the subsequent four years, you experienced this yourself. You ran for Congress in 2004. It was a pretty tough proposition. You ran in 2006. You were part of a Democratic wave. And then the Democratic governing trifecta of both chambers of Congress and the presidency was completed with Barack Obama in 2008. Um, And so, you know, at at this point, you've hit a a near low point. And so you might wonder, would the Republican Party try to pivot? Would they try to rebrand? Would they try and take a new course? And that's not really the course that they took. Um, as you probably recall. Oh, go ahead. Let me just interrupt for a quick second, because I'm, you know, thinking about the atmosphere in the country in 2004 and 2006, and keeping in mind where we're headed with this 
discussion, at least about the historical context, um, is that uh, when I first ran for Congress in 2004, it was a it was a major uphill battle. Um, President Bush uh, had been elected in the year 2000. President Bush, let's uh, be absolutely, uh, this is an easy statement, was a very different kind of person and American than Donald Trump. President Bush um, had a family history of service to his country. Um, he was surrounded by neocon hawks, but he was not somebody who fundamentally threatened the uh, foundations of American democracy. He was a system guy. He was a product of, of, the, of the Ivy League tradition in the Republican Party. He was a uh, conservative, but he wasn't a wacko. And, and in fact, the Republican Party, as conservative as it may have been way back in 2004, uh, was not in the thrall of a carnival, carny, of a carny, carny charlatan. It was a very different kind of party uh, at the time. And in 2006, when I got elected um, the, to, to Congress, the race largely around the country was a race on the issue of the Iraq war. It was a race around issues in which the sense of the country going in the wrong direction was not because the rule of law had been threatened uh, or because we had somebody whose decency was in question uh, in terms of party leadership, but because a, a war was being prosecuted that people saw was just the wrong, was wrong, was the wrong thing, was the wrong thing to do. And it swept in 2006 Democrats into Congress and then um, uh, the uh, presidential election of 2008 came about with a with a very different kind of Republican Party, at least on the surface. So when we examine the historical context, I think it is fair to also recognize how different the Republican Party then was from where we'll end up as, in our discussion. Absolutely. I think it's important to, to bear in mind that it's not a perfect parallel, right? You know, at the same time, um, you know, it's, it's interesting that coming off of a, a, a period after 9-11, when George W. Bush recorded the highest approval ratings in the history of the Gallup poll, um, he had gone to absolutely rock bottom levels in his final two years. He only got to 37 percent approval in three weeks of polling. Now, Donald Trump is a little different. He is much more hated by people who are against him. His strong disapproval ratings are much higher, but he has a floor under him. He's only been as low as 37% in three weeks over this final two-year stretch. And so it, there are some clear differences. But you know, to, back to the original question here, what is the Republican Party going to do next? Are they going to come out of, if they lose, and especially if they lose by anything approaching the kinds of margins we're seeing in polling right now, is there going to be a fundamental pivot here? Um, and I think the historical story suggests there really isn't. But we can get into that uh, in the next segment. 
It's off the record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM. We are taking a deep dive into Republican politics. What a joy. What It feels a little sticky, but it's an interesting thing to do. And we're going to take a short break to hear from the folks who keep us on the air, and we'll be right back. Don't go away. It's off the record when Paul Hodes and Matt Robinson on WKXLAM and FM streamed live over the interwebs at nhtalkradio.com. Look us up for your binge listening pleasure. We're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. And Matt and I have jumped into the Wayback Machine. We took us back to 2004 and 2006, the halcyon last days of the George Bush administration when the Republican Party in 2006 was swept out of D.C. with a completed trifecta in 2008 when charging in from the progressive or practical center of American politics, making Democrats feel he was progressive and Republicans horrified that an African-American was going to be President Barack Obama came galloping to the rescue of the Democratic Party, having addressed the party faithful in 2004, saying there is, uh, there is no uh, black America or white America. There's no red America, no blue America. There's just America. And trying to bring people together, elected in 2008, the Democrats had a a, a, a mandate, the first African-American president, majorities across the board. And what did the Republicans do, Matt? How did they, how did they approach their renaissance, their renewal, their rebirth, their reconstruction? What did they do? Well, the playbook is pretty simple, right? They just, they just re-coalesced as a party in opposition. And that's a pretty comfortable place for the Republican Party today, right? It, it aligns with sort of the conservative mindset and, and outlook against what they see. And, you know, a number of Republicans I spoke with uh, off the record sort of underscored this point in, in, in working up this article. You know, from their perspective, the culture and the country has been moving steadily left over the last 40 to 50 years. And you see it on policy and you see it um, on uh, on social issues. And so it's a very comfortable place for a conservative party to be sort of a, a party of opposition. That's what they did. And it helped them recoalesce, recrystallize and lift their brand. So by the time we got to the 2010 midterms, which were a pretty painful period for Democrats. Oh, oh, um, can we have to talk? Yeah, about you know, not to dredge up midterms. unpleasant memories. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm, oh, the pain, the pain. But, you know, by that point, yeah, I mean, Obama's approval rating at that point with both Republicans and independents, which had actually been fairly strong, had dropped 20 points. And, um, you know, you had a a resurgent Republican Party uh, with Mitch McConnell summing up the whole goal as the single most important thing we want to achieve is for President Obama to be a one term president. 
Yeah, so, I know. You know, so, I think. Can, wait, wait a second. Wait. I just want to bring our our listeners back and remember this 2008 to 2010 period is is singularly marked, of course, by the great financial um, uh, recession uh, brought about by the collapse of the financial system, which had been engineered uh, in my best nonpartisan. Uh, fashion had been engineered by Republican policies in which there'd been a failure of oversight of the investment banks, which had allowed these crazy investments all across the globe, tax cuts for the very rich, a war costing trillion, trillions that was fought off the books. Um, and so 2008 swept Obama in. The Democrats presided over a recovery act, which was uh, which the Republicans attempted to stall. Um, President Obama decided to spend whatever political capital he had on passing the Affordable Care Act, which everybody hated, including a lot of my then constituents in New Hampshire. Nobody understood what it was. The Democrats' messaging about all this was terrible. And let me just also comment that in the face of abject Republican opposition in which they decided that they would be the party that if he was for it, they were against it. And that was their basic position. It was an easy, as you said, easy place for Republicans to be. It seemed to be more than opposition. It seemed to be an attempt to stop government in its tracks. And they did it effectively because they knew how to message. And they messaged the Obamacare uh, uh, effort as the government's coming to take your health care away. And in the face of that, what did Democrats do? Nothing. Um, and I will just say that I recall trying to reach out as a, as a member of Congress, trying to reach out to the White House. I even had a meeting with David Axelrod in his office, in the White House. And I, and I, I, I don't want to say I was pressing, but I said, David, I'm seeing I'm hearing trouble out there. Democrats aren't messaging health care. And he said, oh, we're doing fine. Uh, Obama's really popular. We're doing, we're doing fine. And David Axelrod is now a very popular guy. He's on television. He runs a, po a, 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 a political a graduate school. So he's a big mocker in the world. That's great. But the Democrats' messaging around health care was abysmal. And the president did not turn his groundswell of support into an ongoing, ongoing kind of grassroots effort that would support his political agenda. And so when it came to 2010, man, oh man, what a wipeout. And, and how is it, Matt, that a party, an entire party, can adopt a strategy of not just being, say, more conservative than they were, although they seem to become more radically conservative with the Tea Party effort. But just saying no, when does just say no count as the renaissance of a party? You know, it all depends on what your objectives are. And I think the story that you just laid out is an awfully attractive one to Republicans who will be in the position of trying to figure out how to recover from a post-Trump era. And you know, I think that's that's the position that we're trying to evaluate here. And that's what I was hearing from Republicans in the course of reporting this article was, yeah, this baseline scenario makes a lot of sense. Is it a long term strategy to your question for 
broadening the appeal of the party? Is it a long-term strategy for saying, how are we going to win an election in 10 years? No, not really. It's, it's much more an immediate triage tactic, but it's effective. 2009, 2010 shows that. And the experience after 2012, where the Republicans did do sort of an internal autopsy and they created a report and they did some soul searching and they thought, all right, we really need to reposition ourselves on immigration, outreach to people of color. And that lasted only as long as the backlash, which um, really halted the political momentum of someone like a Marco Rubio. Um, And before you knew it, you had President Trump running uh, for office calling Mexicans rapists and pledging to build a wall. And so I I think it's pretty clear that the first move in terms of recovery for the Republican Party is going to be realigning in opposition, looking for opportunities uh, for for examples of Democratic overreach that will resonate with their base. Um, And that's a pretty effective way, again, tactically, not strategically to build your party for the long term, but tactically to reset your momentum, get your feet under you and start building toward the next election. So let me, let me, let me just think out loud for a moment about the arc that we're discussing for the Republican party. You, you have the GOP as a conservative party with the, uh, the, the legacy of George Bush, senior George Bush, Jr., um, uh, they have replaced by uh, Barack Obama in 2008. And, and between 8 and 10, the Republican Party, um, with Mitch McConnell essentially as its uh, leader, puts a kibosh or tries to. It's a just-say-no uh, party with the Tea Party arguably representing a a fake grassroots effort because it was funded heavily by Democrats, but an effort that seemed to shift things to the right for the Republican Party, pretty substantially shifting things to the right. So 2008, 2010, the Republican Party starts shifting to the right um, in a big way. 2012, they run Mitt Romney, hardly a big shift to the right. It seemed they picked another kind of Republican moderate in 2012, that didn't work out too well for them. It was kind of a surprise to many that Barack Obama even got elected. I wonder to what extent that was the product of internecine warfare or dysfunction in the Republicans between the just say no radical right and the more moderates who were still clinging to a Mitt Romney type. And what did that mean then after 2012 um, for the Republicans? From 2012 to 2016, you had four years of, well, we said just say no before, uh, but now we've got the House, we've got the Senate. We are not just saying no, we are, we are going to put a stick in your eye with just, with just say no. And what did the party simply keep on shifting further and further to the radical right over between 2012 and 2016? Because in the end, it wasn't even a Republican who got elected, uh, who got nominated as the Republican nominee. It was this crazy charlatan huckster outlier who had supported Democrats, who was this rich guy who 
ran on, I'm going to take the whole thing apart because I'm not of the establishment. So how did the Republican, what does it say about the Republican renewal or renaissance and their trajectory between 2012 and 2016 that they ended up with Donald Trump? Well, there's there's a lot of complicated stuff to unpack in there. You know, if you look into <laughs> the trajectory of the Republican Party, starting in about 1994, right, with the new Gingrich 1994 Republican Revolution, what you start to see, and, and you can see it in congressional voting data, political scientists track how members of Congress vote. And what you see is a steady march to the right, and also much less ideological diversity. The Republicans start packing into a pretty narrow ideological band. Now, there's a lot of reasons underlying why you see that effect. One of them is that it became increasingly the case that Republicans were more afraid in their congressional districts of being primaried from the right, being called a rhino, a Republican in name only, than being defeated from the left. And so you saw this natural kind of self-reinforcing pattern of candidates for office at all other levels besides the presidency having this arms race to be more conservative. Now, what's interesting at the Republican level, at the presidential level for Republicans, is that if you look back at the history of, the, of presidential nominations, really going all the way back to, to Reagan, it is not the most conservative candidate in the Republican presidential nominating process who has won the nomination. I mean, Mitt Romney, McCain, the Bushes, you know, the Dole, the list goes on and on. And so what you see coming out of that is in 2016, you, you have a party that's undergoing a lot of underlying demographic change. It's getting demographically narrower. It's less diverse, it's less ideologically and ethnically and socioeconomically diverse. Um, and Donald Trump comes in, and in the words of one Republican insider who I interviewed for this article, he just blows apart all of the swim lanes in the Republican Party, and he consolidates them, and now it's one lane, the lane of Donald Trump. So the big question for Republicans coming out of this period, if Trump loses, is, well, with him off the scene, what happens next? And you know, we can we can kind of speculate a little bit about this. Republicans I spoke to broke that into four questions. What will what will Trump do? What kind of a role will he have? Um, have Republicans sort of crossed the Rubicon here? Like, is there no coming back from the place that Trump has taken them to? What will Democrats do? Have they overreached? And is it possible for a Republican candidate to run as a Trump light, sort of the, the Trump policy without the Trump outrage? Twittering and uh, you know all the other Trumpian stuff uh, that goes with him. You know whatever you think about Donald Trump and 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 I I trash him every opportunity I get because uh, I find him to be a particular particularly odious uh, human. Um, uh, in addition to uh, the unprecedented damage he's done to the rule of law and the foundations of our democracy, let alone common sense policies that balance every that uh, that that hurt uh, common sense policies that would uh, help every American, you got to hand it to the guy um, because he, in his in his ignorance and malfeasance and slipperiness, he's a Teflon coated ball bearing. 
uh, it's impossible to 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 put get your thumb on him uh, because he'll squirm away and he has an unprecedented grip on the Republican Party. We'll take a short break here on Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes. We're talking about the Republican Party like good Democrats should. We're going to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll be back to answer the four questions, none of which begin with, why is tonight different from any other night? So don't go away. Don't be like that. Back with Paul Hodes and Matt Robinson on Off the Record here on WKSLA and FM streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com and a podcast on Google Stitcher and iTunes uh, for your listening pleasure on any device anywhere in the world. Well, as good Democrats, we are deep into the machinations of Republican politics. What will happen on that? longed for day, that sunny day when Donald Trump is no longer the president. Joe Biden has taken office in our sparkling imagination. There is a new dawn in America. New operatives are flooding the agencies. In Congress and the Senate, uh, Democrats have retained their majority in the House. And maybe, just maybe, let's We have to look at this in both ways. Maybe the Democrats have a one-seat majority in the Senate because the revulsion against Donald Trump has been so complete that voters have come out and said, what have we got to lose? We're going to give the Democrats the whole banana. They can have all all three uh, levers of the House, Senate, and uh, the presidency. And then on the other hand, maybe there's a one or two vote uh, a minority. Maybe it's still a divided government. Uh, but in any event, the Republicans are no longer president. And so Matt Robeson has been thinking and writing about the four questions that, that Republican operatives are already thinking about. What happens in that, in that scenario to the Republican Party? And what do they do between 2020 and 2022 and then on into the next presidential election. How do they set themselves up to come back as they always do with a vengeance? All right, so let's accept, let's stipulate for a second that the baseline scenario that we've laid out earlier in the show is about right. The first move is you try to reposition yourself, your party in opposition to President Biden. um, And you're, you're, you're just trying to use the Democrats' moves to kind of re-incite your base, get your people ginned up in opposition. Well, the first question you ask from there is, well, what does Donald Trump do? This is someone who really has almost unprecedented, unprecedented dominance over his party. Um, really, going back to American history, it's, it's hard to think of someone who's had a, a, a bigger stranglehold. Um, and, you know, so... The sense I got from talking to Republicans was he has, Donald Trump has the capacity to really rule the Republican Party and call the shots. But 
he probably lacks the discipline, focus, and strategic temperament to exercise it. Um, there's nothing in his. Yeah, there's nothing in the last three and a half years that suggests that he can make use of it. And in fact, what what seems most likely is that he will focus a post presidency on you know look he's turned he's turned his presidency into sort of the festivist presidency right it's all if, if for seinfeld fans out there it's all feats of strength and airing of grievances there's no reason to think that his post presidency is going to be any different right it's going to be probably about prosecuting the case of why he didn't really lose and why he was the greatest president ever and you know playing out vendettas against people who wrong him so it, it on the one hand it seems like Republicans should be able to try to separate themselves, to be able to, you know, try to occupy that Trump light space of, well, we like what he did on judges. We like what he did on China. We like what he did on immigration. Um, we, you know, we just wouldn't have done all this other stuff. And they're certainly going to try. Um, but it's not so clear that he is going to let them. It's, it, it seems most likely, based on his history, that he is going to haunt the Republican Party for the near future. And Republicans and Trump may be heading for a very messy divorce with joint custody of the base of the party in a very awkward way. So that's sort of question number one. I, I don't know what your take is on that, but that was the, that was the sense I got uh, based on my interviews. So I'm trying to imagine, I'm trying to, I'm sitting here trying to imagine the, 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 the MAGA, the MAGA guy. Um, and, and I was out, uh, you know, I've been out on, out on the, uh, doing a little hand waving um, and uh, had a conversation with a genuine hater, uh, hated Democrats, a big Trump guy, um, thought all Democrats were haters and, uh, we're taking the country straight to uh, the inferno below. And I'm trying to think of that guy with Donald Trump out of the White House, the Democrats in control. Um, and, and what kind of Republican can speak at, to that level, the level that I heard and felt of, of, of true, uh, of, 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 of a disdain for for everything that he wasn't, that was so deep uh, and and was so inflamed by this president. Um, how does a Republican Party? Let's just assume that it's uh, facing um, uh, at least at the federal level a takeover by Democrats. How does the Republican Party handle that kind of divorce? How do they? rewrite a little bit of history? How do they say, well, that was then, this is now? Um, do we, he, was, he was unique, and uh, we went along, but we're really not quite like that. Um, maybe, 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 there's, maybe, maybe you can see us as that old, that grand old party that stuck to conservative principles, but Really, we're just Americans, just like you. We believe in the rule of law and our institutions and our alliances. Uh, we don't like Vladimir Putin. We, we that, remember we didn't say much because he was president, but now that he's not, we can 
we can return to our roots. Is that what happens? And what does that depend on? Yeah, it's a good question. But, you know, I think, I think you kind of nailed it that, look, it's not going to be easy for any Republicans and, you know, for the Republicans who are gearing up to run for president in 2024. There is going to be a tightrope to walk. But, um, you know, the classic political move, it was something like this, is don't defend attack, right? And the dominant dynamic that we've seen in American politics over the last 10 years has been negative partisanship. The fact that it's easier to motivate people on your side out of their hatred and uh, desire to vote out the other side than it is to inspire them with what Sarah Palin called the hopey changey stuff. Um, and it certainly is an easier position for Republicans to occupy being the party in opposition and being able to pick off instances of what they'll perceive to be Democratic overreach um, and not have to defend. They probably rhetorically will not try to spend too much time defending the legacy of Donald Trump. They'll turn it from right now they're facing a referendum on Donald Trump. And, uh, you know, the classic political move is don't make it a referendum, make it a choice. And by 2021, it will be don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And I'm not going to defend Donald Trump. But I'll tell you that his approach on judges was a heck of a lot better than Joe Biden. So you can you can sort of start to see how the rhetoric can can form itself. And, you know, one point that a, a Republican that I interviewed for my article uh, made to me that I, I found very compelling was, look, it's not going to be easy for Republicans, but don't think it's going to be a cakewalk for Democrats either. You've seen all the energy in the party just in the primaries that we've seen this week going toward insurgent candidates. Amy McGrath may have been upended uh, in Kentucky after raising $40 million by um, an African-American progressive um, who raised $790,000. Um, you know, we've seen an incumbent, Elliot Engel, in New York likely lose. So Democrats who are in Congress are eyeing their left flank. They are nervous. There is going to be an awful lot of pressure on Democrats, especially if they retake the Senate, to lean left. And there is a real possibility that they're going to hand some rhetorical gifts to Republicans along the way that's going to ease that process of not having to be defensive on Trump as much and being able to go on offense and create a choice, create an alternative. So some of what I have already begun to worry about, because I'm a good Democrat and I like to worry, because Democrats are worriers. We're whiners. We're worriers. When faced with the aggressive fear-based tactics of a galvanized Republican opposition, infuriated by the mistreatment of their president, the president who was wrongfully impeached, the president who stood tall for America, who kept the Chinese at bay, who kept all those immigrants from invading our country, who mistreated and was hated at every turn by the Democrats who wouldn't let him complete his agenda. And they are not going to take it lying down. My anxiety, my worry in this hypothetical that we've created already goes to the tepid, uh, tepid response that Democrats are so prolifically, uh, uh, politically adept at, kind of an Alfred E. Newman, for those of a certain age who remember Mad Magazine, a what-me-worry uh, approach to life when faced by virulent, aggressive, political hate 
filled tactics from the right, uh, Democrats basically curl up in a ball and say, but we're so nice. We're so smart. Our ideas are so good. What don't you like about more health care? What don't you like about more jobs? What don't you like about saving the planet? Let's all sing with the whales. And the Republicans are very, in my, in my worried scenario, are just going to eat Democrats for lunch. Now, some of that depends, of course, on who takes over as the presidential candidate for 2024. So let's, in the last few minutes, we've got Matt, look into your crystal ball, deep into the crystal ball that is revolving in front of me, glowing dark, I say, glowing light, I say, I say glowing in the crystal ball. Who, who is Republican presidential nominee 2024? Oh, that's a tough one. I didn't know that you were going all the way to that one. Um, I have no idea. I, I'll fully admit that. Um, I, I do take the, the input. You're such a careful guy. You're such a <laughs> careful guy. You know. People, the reason I like Matt Robeson so much is because he is so adept at sideswiping an issue. He'll take a direct question, and but, he knows how to parry it better than anybody I know. Well, that's what I always said in debates, right? Like, you know, don't, yeah. don't uh, presume the premise of the question. But look, I, you know. I certainly wouldn't bet money against a Nikki Haley type. You know, what it's going to come down to is who can walk the tightrope, right? You know, you have to be able to capture within the Republican primary the Trump legacy. Um, you have to navigate a still presumably um, active on some level Donald Trump. You don't want him out there in full opposition to you, throwing Twitter haymakers at you. Um, but you do have to try to portray yourself as a Trump light. You do have to try to move your party forward. Uh, you know, there's no way that Republicans are going to be successful in 2024 if they're still as cratered in the suburbs with seniors. I mean, look, just take seniors for a second. You know, polling out today um, across the board suggests that there's been a 20 point swing among seniors. They, you know, this is this is a group. Trump was winning by 14 points. In 2016, Biden's winning them by six today. If you're losing the suburbs, seniors, you still have a fired up Democratic base, um, you know, people of color, um, younger voters. You ain't getting anywhere in 2024. So I think the, re the challenge in a nutshell for 2024 will be walk the tightrope um, and turn it into a choice with Biden. The challenge for Democrats is going to be, well, can they make their top priority democratic reforms can they you know one of the things that we've seen over the last 10 years since the republican wave of 2010 um, was that their control of state houses led them to be able to do much more political gerrymandering in their favor than had previously been the case and so even in 2018 when democrats had a very strong wave um, they still won 16 fewer seats in the house than they would have otherwise won without it so for democrats can they get something through to fix that for Republicans? Can they walk the tightrope? Folks, you heard it here. Another non-answer from Matt Robeson on Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXL. We'll be back after this to wrap it all up.
we're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Novison on WKXLA and the FM streamed live at NHTalkRadio.com. Here to wrap up another exciting segment in which two Democrats dove into Republican politics, decided that they'd still become the politics of no, just say no, just no, and say it with hate. Just say, no, we hate you to Democrats. Just say, if you're for it, we're against it. Unlikely if they'll say, well, we could be squishy on immigration. We could be squishy on this or squishy on that. They'll be living with the, with the toxic residue of Donald Trump, but they'll embrace it. And my worry is Democrats will just wilt. Now, Matt Robeson gave me one of the great non-answers of all time about who's going to be the uh, Republican candidate for president in 2024. My answer, Matt, is somebody we don't even know yet is going to be the presidential candidate for the Republicans in 2024. And for Democrats, it's Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Who's a Dodger now? I call shenanigans. Okay, folks, you heard it here. Shenanigans on Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on KXL. We had a good time. We hope you did, too. We'll be back next week to pick apart some more politics. See you then.